morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. We gather every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. both online and in person. We gather throughout the weeks in small groups that meet in houses and in churches and online. And we are happy to have you with us. It is our second week studying the book of the Revelations. Now, there's a lot of different opinions and, and perspectives on the book of Revelation. This last week, we released an episode of our Talk About Anything podcast and uh, I had a pastor named Jack Coltis on, and he pastors in rural Missouri. Now, his town is about 650 people. But he also pastored in Seattle, in the heart of Seattle, not like the suburbs or an hour out. He was in the heart of Seattle. So he's pastored in West Coast urban settings, and he's pastored now for the last several years in rural Missouri. And so uh, it was a great conversation. We talked about the difference between like urban and rural, coastal versus middle America. Uh, we also talked a bit about racism and, and those issues. Uh, and then we also talked about the book of the Revelation, about the rapture, about end time stuff. So I think it's, a, it's kind of a good companion discussion uh, with our overall study of the book of the Revelation. So you can check that out. You just have to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, search Faith on Hill, and you will find all of our audio podcasts. They're also available at faithonhill.com. Now, if you are on Facebook with the video here, if you give us a like and a share, that'd be awesome. If you are uh, listening via audio but you're not subscribed, please hit subscribe. We appreciate it. If you have a Bible, open to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. So in Revelation, chapter 1, the Apostle John is praying on a Sunday morning. He is exiled to the desert island of Patmos in the eastern Mediterranean. It is a terrible place. It's a barren place. It's a desolate place. And while he is there praying living in the spiritual rhythms of our faith, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he sees a vision of Jesus as he is now walking among his church. And there are these seven lampstands that represents the seven churches that John kind of was the overseeing pastor of. You know, there's the book of Ephesians, which is written to the church in Ephesus. And John was sort of the... Uh, elder statesman of that church. But it wasn't just that church. There were seven churches that were all kind of linked in towns surrounding uh, Ephesus. And so John pastored there, but he had kind of an overall kind of like a bishop. He had responsibility, kind of like our superintendent has responsibility over our churches in Washington and Oregon. And so he's now in exile, and Jesus said, I want you to write to your church and to, to the churches that you have direct relational connection to. And I want you to speak to them the words I have for you. Now, when I was in Bible college, in fact, this is something uh, uh, Jack Coltis and I talked about on the Talk About Anything podcast that released this week. But we both went to the same Bible college, just at different times. And when I was in Bible college, one of the last classes I took was a class on Revelation. And it was common teaching 
at that school to say that chapters two and three, the seven churches represent the seven eras of church history. And they said that Ephesus uh, was the original early church and that Smyrna was that first persecuted church and, and it goes on and you, they, they kind of told this history of the church. Now, I've done a lot of history reading. I read mostly nonfiction and mostly history or biography. And in the last uh, several years, I've, I've made it kind of my interest to know more of the non-Western, non-Catholic or Protestant history of Jesus's church. Uh, I've, I've been interested in this for like 20 years because when I took church history at Bible college, it largely only focused on European and American church history. And I'll be honest with you, when I took church history a couple of years ago in my grad school, it was the same thing. So I, I would recommend to you a couple of books. Uh, I have read several times the book, The Lost History of Christianity uh, by Dr. Philip Jenkins. Uh, he was at the time, oh, where was he? He was at Yale, I believe. He's a Baylor now. I think that is a fantastic book. It covers the history of Nestorian Christianity, which is the Church of the East. So basically, as uh, the church was moving into Europe West, which is the church history most of us know, Dr. Jenkins explores the history of the church that went east through Syria, uh, what we think of as Iran, historically has been Persia, into India, and even as far as Japan. Uh, there, there is a great history of Jesus' church that way. And I'm currently reading a book that I recommend to you, even though I haven't finished it yet, I feel confident in recommending it, called How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind by Dr. Thomas Oden. I'd read stuff by Dr. Oden before. Uh, he's sort of in retirement these days, but uh, it's a fantastic book that I'm highly enjoying. My point is, when I was taught in Bible college, and maybe you heard this teaching too, it was a very Western Euro white centric view of the history of the church. The problem with doing that was that you ignored what the book was actually saying. Jesus never says, I'm writing to the whole, you know, to tell you about the history of the church. And as we said last week, when there is something mysterious and metaphorical, almost always it is either explained directly. Like John will see a vision of something and then he doesn't know what it means and somebody will come along and say, hey, do you know what that means? And I'll say, no, I sure don't. And they'll say, hey, let me tell you what it means. And it's explained to us. Or in other cases, there isn't a direct explanation, but there is such a clear, clear analogous to something in the Old Testament uh, that, that it's just everyone just generally agrees. That's what it was talking about. Because if you've read, especially the book of Genesis, but all throughout the whole Old Testament, then you would know, oh, he is making like a reference that's so obvious that it's the same as if I say, you remember when the two towers fell? And I don't have to say which two towers and I don't have to say when or what I'm talking about because to an American alive today, that is such an obvious thing. If I were to say the day that lived in infamy, maybe not to my children or to anybody younger than me or even my own age, but people older than me, my parents, my grandparents' age, you just say the day that lived in infamy and they know exactly they know exactly what you mean. Where were you the day that Kennedy died is something that I've heard my parents' generation say over and over again, and nobody has to explain what that means. Which Kennedy? Who are we talking about? So there's things like that in the book of the Revelation that are on that level of it's so clear, it's so obvious that they don't need somebody to come along and explain because anybody who has read the Old Testament would know what's being talked about. Nowhere 
Does somebody come along to John and say, hey, you know those seven letters that Jesus told you to write to the seven churches? That they're, they're, they actually just mean the history of the church. Nowhere does somebody come along and say, hey, this is just like in the Old Testament because we don't have that. I believe that if we are consistent in our approach, and that's one of our things that I want to focus on as we study the book of Revelation. Are we consistent in how we read the Bible? Everywhere else in the Bible. I, I read the Bible literally except where it's obviously figurative. If the Bible says that uh, God loves me, I take that literally. If the Bible says thou shall not murder, I take that literally. If the Bible says God is my rock, my strong fortress, I don't think that God is literally a rock or a military installation. I believe it's speaking of the firmness of God, the surety of God, how we can rest and trust in God and build our lives upon a foundation of faith in him. So when I come to the book of Revelation, I want to have that same approach. I take it literally, except where it's obviously figurative. And if it says write to the church in Ephesus, then I believe he literally wrote two people who were living in that first century, who were living in the time of the apostles. They were real people in a real place, a real church, not something figurative or allegorical. When Jesus says, I'm holding seven stars in my hand, and then he explains what that means, I understand that to be an allegory, a metaphor. And he explains that those seven stars in chapter one represent the seven angels or messengers to the church, and the seven golden lampstands represented the seven churches. Why do I know that? Because Jesus explained it. So he says to write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus is saying, these, are from, these words are from me. They're not John's words. They're from Jesus to his church. It's interesting that in each letter to each church, it says to the angel of the church. Meaning, if it's to the angel... I don't know why that angel, if it was a literal angel, would need to be written to. If it's to the pastor of the church, as some think, that, that he is expecting those of us who have been given the word of God to pass it along to others. He's expecting me to pass along the word of God to the church here. He's expecting parents, fathers, and mothers to pass along the word of God to our children. He's expecting us to pass along the word of God to whoever we've been given to give it to. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars. He says in verse 2, I know your deeds your hard work, your perseverance. You cannot tolerate wicked people. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them false. You have persevered, endured hardship for my name, and you have not grown weary. Oh, I know a lot of people that have endured hardship, but they're weary. A lot of us feel that way after the last couple of years. We're weary. These guys have stood firm. They haven't grown weary in doing the right things. They haven't allowed false teachers in. They have held to the truth. And they're not just academic in their faith. They don't just know all of the right Bible answers in their head, but they've experienced hardship. They've lived it out. They have persevered through persecution. He says, these are good things. These are things to be commended. But I have this against you, verse 4. That's got to be a shock to the system. There are Christians and churches, and, and as I read through these letters, by the way, I think it's fair to say that there are churches collectively and Christians individually in our day and age 
in our community right now that would fit a description of one of these churches. And he's saying, hey, you guys have done these good things. And you could see them going, yes, awesome. Jesus sees what we've done. And then he says, but I hold this against you. Wait, what? Because they, they've got to stand firm. We, we have good doctrine. We, we do good deeds. We work hard. We've persevered through hard times. We, we haven't grown weary. We have, we have rejected false teaching. What do you have against us? He says, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you. I will remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, who were the Nicolaitans? We aren't 100% sure. They, they were some form of, of heretical sect. That much is agreed upon. Uh, the early church fathers wrote about them, uh, indicated that they were a group that existed in that first century, but we don't know much about them beyond that. There is different speculation that they were involved in uh, some form of immorality, uh, idol worship, participating in, in uh, ritual uh, sexual immorality, meaning uh, in, in the early days, or I should say in that time, prostitution was almost always linked to temple worship of pagan idols. Uh, I mean, prostitution that's called the, you know, the world's oldest profession. Uh, there's always been prostitutes. The Bible talks about prostitutes going back into the book of Genesis. Uh, that there is, uh, if you read the story of Judah and Tamar, there's, a, there's prostitution talked about in the very early days of human civilization. But what they had done in Greco-Roman culture was they had spiritualized it. It was a way to sort of legitimize prostitution. You as a man, whether you were young or old, married, single, whatever, if you were an adult man, you would go to the temple, and at the temple, you could engage in immorality, and it was part of acceptable, societally acceptable worship. And so uh, it, the thought is that some have said the Nicolaitans uh, were people who taught that you could go and participate in the idolatrous worship because if you prayed over the food that was sacrificed to idols, then it was clean. And since you were, uh, you know, these rules in the Bible about uh, temple prostitution were in the Old Testament, that was part of the Old Covenant, so those rules don't apply to Christians today. Others have said the Nicolaitans were a, a group that was big on uh, authority and, and dominating over people. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a movement called the Heavy Shepherding Movement, uh, that was that every person needed a shepherd. And it was basically like a, an overlord over you, a spiritual authority in your life. And so you literally, if you were going to buy a car, you had to go to your shepherd and say, I'm thinking about buying this car. What do you think? And then uh, if you were going to, you know, take a new job, you had to go to your shepherd and say, hey, I'm thinking about taking this job. What do you think? So it could be it's that, although most uh, sources that I read indicated that it was involved in immorality. So Jesus is saying to them, you've persevered, but you have fallen short of loving. You don't love like you used to, and you need to repent. Yes, you are against immorality. Yes, you are against false teaching, but love matters. How many Christians and how many churches today say, we oppose false teaching? Good. We hold to sound doctrine? 
Awesome. We are against the immorality of the world around us. Fantastic. And yet, there's a reason why Christians have a reputation of being jerks. Of Christians have a reputation of being unloving. I've heard from people who work in restaurants that if, if, if there's a church nearby and they have a big crowd after church, bad tippers. You know, expecting high service, no tip in return, uh, not, not great customers, the whole thing. That's not awesome. What happens is we build up these things that we value. The sins that we choose to be against and the virtues or the ideals that we choose to hold up. And the church in Ephesus held up truth and held up morality. And Jesus says, that's awesome. But if you don't get back to love, I'm going to take your lampstand away. The church of Jesus will always endure. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. The church of Jesus will always endure, but there is no promise for individual churches. There is no guarantee that an individual church will exist beyond one generation. If we aren't people who love the way that God loves. Now, what does he mean that you've not loved like you did at first? It could be that he's speaking about loving God. That, that we get so full of our own righteousness and our own knowledge that we forget about loving God. It could be that he is speaking about loving other people. That we, we know all the right things, we stand firm, and if you come in and look exactly like us, then we'll allow you in. But if you're different than us, if you uh, are outside, we don't care about you. It could be that they are incredibly judgmental. We know from the book of Acts that Ephesus was a seat of pagan worship. It could be that they are incredibly unloving to the world around them that needs the good news of Jesus. Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Jesus says, listen to what the Spirit's saying to you. And, and you could see somebody like an Ephesian Christian standing up and saying, but Jesus, what about that church? They don't hold the truth like we do. They don't stand against immorality like we do. And they're so busy yelling that they can't listen to what the Spirit is saying to them. Get back to love. Love God, love people. Jesus said the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. They had forgotten the greatest command of God, and they had overemphasized other things in its place. Then he writes to the church in Smyrna, these are the words of him who is first and last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions, your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. They are the synagogue of Satan. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus is Jewish. He's the king of the Jews. This is not an anti-Semitic verse. This is not code for Christians to be against Jewish people. There is no place for that within the church. Jesus is Jewish. The human, fully human part of Jesus is Jewish. John the apostle who wrote the book, Jewish, in the time the book was written, the churches would have still had a massive Jewish demographic, if not in many churches, still a majority Jewish demographic. What he is saying is, I know where you dwell, and you're slandered by the, 
those who say they are Jews, but they are not because they haven't given themselves to the Messiah, Jesus. They are the synagogue of Satan. In our day, there are places in this world where persecution comes not from secular forces or not from other faiths. Persecution might come from the church. In Russia, and this isn't new since Putin, this has been the case since communism fell. Bible-believing, gospel-centered Christians of many different traditions have felt the hand of oppression not from secular forces, but from people within the Orthodox Church. There, I went to a town in 1998 in Russia where you could not preach the gospel on certain places in certain public streets. And that ruling had been passed at the urging, not of secular forces, not of former communists, but of the Orthodox Church. They said that they were of Jesus, but they opposed the preaching of his gospel because they wanted power and position. This exists in other places and in other times. There have been places where the established uh, institution that calls itself the church has opposed the organic family of God, the living church of Jesus that is people, not institutions. I believe that that is the more fair analogous in our day. I don't feel or worry uh, that the synagogue down the road from us is going to persecute us. In fact, I'm, I'm concerned that we don't care enough about the safety of the synagogue down the road. They have to have security. I don't. But he says to this church in, per, in Smyrna, do not be afraid about what you are, of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Jesus has nothing bad to say to this church. Nothing bad. It's one of two churches like that. He says, I know about your afflictions, and I know about your poverty. So they are an oppressed church. Even before this coming 10-day persecution that seems to be worse than what they've endured before, they are oppressed, they are afflicted, and they are poor. Yet Jesus says they are rich. Why? Because they have him. And great will be their reward in the kingdom of heaven. He knows the slander that they've experienced, not just from outsiders, but from those who should have been on team Jesus. And he says, I know what's coming. And I'm going to tell you this. Don't be afraid. Some of them would die, but because of their faith in Jesus, it will not harm them. They will live forever. Some of them will suffer, but at the end, they will wear a victor's crown. There was a generation of the church, and, there, and, and not just one, and this has happened over and over in the, in, the, in the history of the church, but there definitely was an element of the previous generation of the church that did not care about the world around us. It's all going to burn up anyway, they'd say. It doesn't matter what happens because Jesus is going to come back and take us all away, and there was an escapism that existed in a certain segment of the church. But the knee-jerk reaction has been that we don't think about eternity at all. And there's been over-focus in some places about this present world, which is dying and fading away. The present kingdom, which is dying and fading away. There are those in the world right now suffering greatly for their faith. There are true Christians in Russia right now who are in prison because they have 
spoken the good news of Jesus. There are Christians in, in parts of Asia, Africa, who suffer for their faith. There are Christians here in North America. And I mean in places like Mexico and Honduras and Guatemala, where Christians preach the gospel and they are threatened by cartels, by corrupt officials, because as people get saved and they get away from drugs and violence, it ruins the business of those evil men. The victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So he speaks to Ephesus, the church that has all the right answers, stands for the right things, but does not love. He speaks to Smyrna, a church that everybody else would say is a poor church. He says, you're rich. Everyone else would say is a beaten down church. He says, you are victorious. He writes to the church in Pergamum. These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. What does it mean that Satan has his throne there? I don't know. I am skeptical of those who try to overanalyze this. I am skeptical of those who try to pass this off as mere metaphor. There was something spiritual happening in the city of Pergamum, and these Christians, despite persecution, despite uh, Antipas, who might have been their pastor or one of their leading elders, being put to death for his faith, despite the fact that it was a center of spiritual evil, they had stood firm. Nevertheless, Jesus says in verse 14, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. So this is uh, <clears throat> back during the uh, time of the people of Israel after the exodus going into the promised land. Balak was a king of one of the regional nation city-states, and he said to this guy Balaam, who was a prophet, and Balaam, he said, how do I get, can you curse these guys? And he says, I can't curse them. God won't let me. But I'll tell you what you do. If you get some of your gals to go down and sleep with some of your young men and entice them and say, hey, let us show you how to worship our gods. And just like the temple prostitutes in Ephesus, they said, come, we worship our gods through love and intimacy. And so they would teach them, hey, you come, we'll have some fun. We will give honor to the goddess of fertility, Asherah, or we will give honor to Baal for the good crops, and this is how we worship. Well, that sounds fun. And so that was what Jesus is saying is, you've stood firm, you have held the faith, but you have allowed someone who is teaching the same things. You have allowed for immorality among your people. What, what I'm guessing is going on, and we don't know for sure, but it's reasonable to assume that what's happening in the church is not unlike what's happening in many evangelical Protestant churches today. That young people feel no discomfort in being in the church and being in the world. That I can live as the world lives in terms of my worldview, my thought, my actions, and also be in Christ. And Jesus is saying, hey, you guys are going out and you're participating in idol worship. You're participating in sexual immorality, just like you've heard about in the Old Testament scripture. 
and you see what comes of that. Jesus is saying, watch out because you see what comes of that. He says, likewise, in the same way you hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. That's that group that the Ephesians opposed. The people in Pergamum embraced. Now, either uh, they had had somebody who was a strong, dominating personality. And that sort of dictatorial leadership, I think a lot of times people assume happens only in like small, you know, independent Baptist kind of churches. And certainly that, that has been a thing accused of them. But I have seen it in modern, very permissive, non-denominational, and, and even churches that have a denominational claim, but they're, you know, functionally just a church. I've seen that, where they have this overbearing, top-down leadership approach. And they are permissive. I mean, what's come out about how Hillsong in America especially operated top-down, heavy-handed, and very permissive of immorality. What's coming out about Church Home, which is kind of the Hillsong of the West Coast, started in, uh, planted out of Portland, started in Seattle, now it's all up and down the West Coast. Same kind of things. He's, Jesus says in verse 16, repent, or I will soon come to you and fight against them. That's the false teachers who are leading people into this with the sword of my mouth. What's the sword of his mouth? The word of truth, the gospel. You want to you know what the solution is to sin in the church? It is not condemning people. It's ourselves taking care of our own business and saying, Lord, work your work in me. And then in love and in authenticity, living out what is the truth of the gospel that we have been saved from the world around us? What is the truth of the scripture that Jesus sets us free from sin and death, including the sins of idolatry, including the sins of immorality? Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, the only, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus says that at some point, in heaven, in the kingdom of eternity, we will receive a name that only he knows with us. There will be some sort of like personal secret name that he refers to us as. He's speaking of that personal connection between Jesus and individual believers. He's inviting people in. He's not trying to condemn them. He's not trying to push them out. He's inviting them in deeper. Come away from the things that are destroying you and come deeper into my love. Finally, for today, he writes to the church in the town of Thyatira. He says in verse 18, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your servants and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first, meaning that they started out as loving. They started out full of faith. They started out serving others and persevering, and they're actually doing more of that now than they did at the beginning. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating the food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Now this may be talking about her literal children, it may also be talking about her spiritual children, those who have followed her. And, and I, had a, I had a professor in Bible college, and one night he, he was teaching, it was a night class he was teaching, 
And he stopped and he looked at us and he had glasses and he pulled his glasses down and he said, sometimes God kills people. Put his glasses back up and kept giving his lecture. And we're sitting there, you know, like, what did he just say? In the book of Acts, God kills Ananias and Sapphira. In the Old Testament, 1 Samuel, he kills Hophni and Phinehas. In uh, the book of, of Joshua, as the, the tabernacle is established, and the sons uh, of uh, you know, Aaron come and offer strange fire, God kills them for their perversion of his worship. First of all, to the Christian, death is not the end of anything. Somebody could die. God could say, that's it. You're done. And still enter heaven, enter the kingdom of heaven because of the grace of God through Jesus our Lord. But we do have natural consequences. It could be that they are struck down on a bed of suffering because of their immorality. That some sort of STD that that they don't have a treatment for takes them down and they die from it. It could just be that Jesus is saying, then all the church will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds and I will pay each of you according to your deeds. He's just saying, hey, this is what you have done. Now I say to the rest of you, verse 24, the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. I could see people from an Ephesian-like church wanting to put more burdens on these Christians. I could see people who, who have all the right answers, who have opposed immorality, who know all the scriptures to come and say, I want to put more burdens on you. Couldn't you see people from a church like, uh, you know, that, that, that's held firm and they want to come and they want to put more burdens? Jesus says, I'm not trying to put more burdens on you. I'm just trying to say, hold firm. Come away from this world that's destroying you. Stand true. Verse 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. What does that mean? We'll get to that later in the book. The one who will rule them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father, and I will give to that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Now, what he's saying to them is, hey guys, if you stand firm, if you stand in victory, there is a reward. It is worth it. All of us in faith have to make a choice because the temptations of this world are all around us. Do I give into the temptation of idolatry? And idolatry in America these days does not look like bowing down to a statue, most likely. Idolatry in America is, do I give myself over to my own career, my own empire over the kingdom of heaven? Do I give myself over to my own desires other than the will of God? Do I give myself over to the worship of money and material over that which is lasting and spiritual? Do I give myself over to the immorality of this world or do I stand in what God has shown me even if that might cost me in the short term? Do I stand in love instead of standing in the polarization and bitterness and anger and rage of the world around us? Jesus is saying it's worth it. It's worth it. You know, I was thinking about these churches. I don't think it's a stretch for me to say that the Ephesian church reminds me a lot of some evangelical, 
conservative, and I mean both politically and theologically, churches that I know of, Christians that I know of. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Thyatira, with their love and service, but also their great immorality, reminds me of some progressive Christians that I know, progressive churches that I know. Pergamum, Pergamum struck me as that sort of like generic church that doesn't have a lot to say, but they do hold to the basic things of the gospel. They hold that Jesus is Lord. They hold that Jesus is um, the only way to God. And they, they exist in places and, and locations that seem like Satan has their throne there. There are churches that I know of in, in key places all across this country and all across the world who have stood firm. And yet, they've also kind of said, we don't really care about these other things. They don't have a deep care or concern for the scripture. They don't have a deep care or concern for uh, holiness. They don't have a deep care or concern for living a life filled in the spirit in the victory of Jesus. I'm not trying to be judgmental. Lord knows we've all got our own problems. I'm not trying to get down on anybody else. But you know what? What's interesting to me is you can focus on the problems of these groups. I was talking to a friend recently, and they were saying all the things that are wrong with conservative evangelical churches. And I couldn't disagree with most of what he was saying. I was talking to another friend recently, and they were saying all the things that were wrong with these politically and theologically progressive churches, compromising churches. I couldn't disagree with what they were saying for the most part. Here was where the disagreement came. When I said, I hear what you're saying about the conservative church. I hear what you're saying about the progressive church. I hear what you're saying about the modern church. I hear what you're saying about the traditionalist church. But what about the good things that they're doing? Why are you ignoring that? Jesus doesn't. What about the bad things that the church that you like is engaging in? Jesus doesn't ignore that. All of us need to be brutally, rigorously honest with ourselves and each other. To say, you know what? No one has it all figured out. I'm so thankful for the grace that Jesus shows his church in these words. But I can focus on arguing old and young, right and left, modern and traditionalist, urban and rural, whatever it is. And I can focus on all these divides and disagreements and divisions. Or I can say, Lord, what is it that needs to change in me and in us? I'm not going to throw stones at them. Do your work in us. Ephesus might have been looking over at Thyatira and said, oh, look at those guys, those compromisers. But Jesus wanted to do his work in them. Pergamum might have looked at Ephesus and said, those guys are legalists. Those guys are hypocrites. Those guys are, are this, this, and that. But Jesus wanted to do his work in Pergamum. What's interesting to me is the whole time, kind of unseen, undervalued, there's Smyrna, seemingly poor, to the rest of the world. Jesus has nothing bad to say to them. Jesus commends them. Jesus wants to strengthen them. And I believe that unseen in our community and in the world around us, there are true believers, churches, individual Christians who are just quietly doing the work of God, faithful to what God has called them to do, faithful to what they know is the truth of the gospel, faithful, and everybody else kind of looks down on them. And Jesus says, you are rich. And I'd rather be in that group than in anybody else. Because there's victory if we can believe it in faith. To those who have ears, 
This is what the Spirit is saying to the church. I pray that Jesus gives us all bigger ears to hear. Next week, we will look at the other three churches and what Jesus has to say to them as we continue the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here.